Well, it was the, the first long trip that my wife and I had taken um, after our honeymoon had ended. We had spent that time down in Florida, and then we went up to Maine where her family vacations and um, had not really traveled much, flew into Boston, had family pick us up, and then, and then we're up there. So it was, our, it was our first long trip together kind of as a couple. And we pulled out of the, the campground that her family stays at every year, and I had never driven from this campground to where we lived in Pennsylvania before. And so we pulled out of the campground. I said to my wife, right or left? And there was a long pause. And that should have signaled to me that this was not going to be a good experience. Um, but she said, go to the left, and I think we should have taken the road to the right because 12 hours later, after a tourist, after a, a scenic trip through the White Mountains of New Hampshire, we ended up in Pennsylvania on what is normally a six-hour trip. And that kind of began the journey for us of the adventure of driving and traveling together, especially before GPS. And... Um, my wife always wanted the map. She loves to be the co-pilot. She wanted the map, but she couldn't read the map. That was the problem, you know. It was like it was in a foreign language to her. And she could have easily had it upside down and not nest. No, no, I'm just kidding. It wasn't that bad. But, um, so after I realized, after that first experience, that I wasn't sure where to go when, she would t- when we would get to these intersections and she'd have to tell me, I would, before we got there, I would say, well, how about you let me take a quick glance at the map? So I would take a quick glance at the map, memorize the next four routes that we had to turn on, and then I'd say, where should we go? And she'd say, right, and I'd, she'd say, right, and I know I think we should go to the left, and we'd end up where we were supposed to go. Now, the reason I did that is because I didn't trust that she could find the way to go using the map. And even the GPS doesn't always help her these days, but she's more willing to admit that than she has been in the past. And as we talk about this issue, really what it boiled down for me is, is unfortunately, um, I didn't trust her to give me the directions to get me where I needed to go. Now, I trust her in a lot of other areas, but not with directions. And she's very glad that I don't these days, but not so much when we were first married. But when you think about your life, can you think about some situations where there's people that want you to trust them, but you struggle to do that? They want you to trust them, but you struggle to do that. Maybe your spouse wants you to trust them with your finances, but the fact that you've run up the credit card the last couple times that they've trusted you makes them not willing to do that. Maybe you want the coach to trust you to run this play for the team, but the last two times he said, this is the play and this is what I want you to do, you've not executed the play the way it should go. You have a friend that wants you to trust you and and say, hey, I'm willing to help out, but every time you call them to help out, no, unfortunately it's not going to work out, it's not going to work out, and you're like, I can't really trust them to help me when I need a hand. Your boss wants you to trust them, but every time he makes a promise, it doesn't come through. And when someone raises a question about your work, he doesn't have your back. He leaves you hanging out to dry. And you're like, I'm not trusting him. Um, Your small group wants you to trust them, but you let something slip about something that was supposed to be confidential. You say, I can't trust them. And you wonder where God is. Why hasn't he shown up? You feel like he's left you hung out to dry. And he keeps saying... Trust me. Trust me. This morning we're going to talk about the subject of trust and the challenge that it is to trust God, to trust someone in our life when it seems like they haven't come through for us in the past. And this morning we're going to wrap up our series on the life of David and uh, hit pause for the holidays and spend some time focusing on some other things. Um, And over the last 
number of weeks, we've been looking at the story of this guy who we've described as an unlikely hero. A shepherd boy that went to a, uh, to a giant killer, that went to a military leader, that went to a fugitive on the run. And a man that, especially over the last three weeks, has been faced with decision after decision after decision. And we watched how he's made these decisions. The first week, he had this decision, and he went to God, and he asked God for direction, and God gave him direction about what he should do, and talked about going to God for direction. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about David being at this place where he had taken a step or two down this road, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God said, No, stop! Stop! And he realized, I shouldn't go down that direction. We talked about what it means to listen to God's Spirit in our lives. And then last week, David again, this time he's fiery mad, he's furious, he's ready to go to battle and do something that he might regret the rest of his life. And it wasn't God's spirit, and it wasn't prayer, it was a person that showed up in his life, a woman by the name of Abigail, who stopped him in his tracks and turned him around and spared him from something he might have to live with the rest of his life. And so each week, David has found himself in these situations. And last week, we looked at this reality that wise people listen to input and avoid foolish decisions. And that's what David found himself confronted with last week. I don't know about you, but I can stand here and I can think about a couple situations this past week where people spoke into my life and gave me advice. And I can think of one situation where I I stayed there and I listened. I said, tell me more and explain it to me and help me understand. And, And I was very engaged in it and I took in the input that was given to me. And yet, unfortunately, another situation that I can remember where someone was giving me input and I just gave them lip service and nodded and just wanted them to stop talking to me about it and move on and didn't really want to listen to what they have to say. And I think all of us want to be wise All of us want to be wise, but not all of us want to listen to people who speak wisdom into our lives. And so this morning, we're going to find ourselves one last time with David at a crossroads, with David at a decision point that he has to make. And this morning, if you're a Christ follower, what we're going to talk about is what this means in your relationship to God. And I believe it's going to challenge you in some areas about what trusting God looks like. If maybe you came to church this morning because someone invited you or thought, you know, I really should do this. I haven't been there for a while and you're kind of coming back and you're not quite sure where you are with this God thing. This issue of trust and God may be the most important issue in your relationship with God. And you're wrestling over this today and deciding where you're at could change the course of your life. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26, if you don't have a Bible, our guys have some and they'll pass, them a, they'll pass them out to you. 1 Samuel 26, and um, as you're turning there to 1 Samuel 26, just to, to set the scene a little bit, David's been on the run from King Saul, he's at the top of the most wanted list. Um, he, they've been on this cat and mouse chase all through the wilderness of Judea. Um, Saul says he's not going to come and hunt down David, but word on the street says otherwise, and David doesn't believe a word that Saul is saying. And they're literally on a collision course for each other. And and there's no win-win in this. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And at the last run in David paused when he's about to make a decision that he was going to regret, and God's Spirit stopped him and turned him around. And chapter 26 that we're going to be in this morning is going to sound a lot like that story. 
a lot like chapter 24, but there's things that are slightly different that I think are important for us to capture and grab hold of as we face decisions that each one of us has to make. And so chapter 26, the story begins with um, David being ratted out once again. Um, A group of individuals known as the Ziphites, who apparently were spies for King Saul, had said to David, had said to Saul, David is in this location, so get your men and go there. And so what David, what Saul did is he rounded up his men, about 3,000 men. David, from the story that tells us, was about 600, so he's outnumbered five to one. So Saul got his men, went to this location, found out where David was, and camped out right near where he was. Well, David had his own spies out in the land, and his spies said, do you realize Saul is right over there? And he said, no, thanks for telling me. And so what David did is, David went to his men and said, Saul is right, is very close to us. Who's going to go with me and sneak into his camp? And so there's two men that are listed there, Ahimelech and Abishai, and Abishai said, I'll go, I'll go. So they snuck from their camp to the edge of Saul's camp. And what they did in those days is the king, um, his tent would be in the center of the camp. And so the reason he was in the center, because it was the most protected location. Most protected location. And so there would be circles of men around the camp. And so imagine David with Abishai as they make their way in the middle of the night from their camp to Saul's camp, and then they get past the guards, and then they get past row after row after of tents of men sleeping till they find the, the king's tent. You say, how did they find the king's tent? Likely, as we often see illustrated in films, the king's tent was much more ornate than every other tent. And so they would have been able to see it. It was clearly identifiable. And um, so they snuck up to the outside of the tent. And as they come into the tent, look what Abishai says in verse 8. And I think we've heard this before. He said, Today God has delivered your enemies into his hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. In earlier stories of David, he had been at banquets with Saul. And do you remember what Saul tried to do to David? He tried to pin David with his spear. And Abishai says, Now God has put an opportunity right in front of you for me to pin him to the ground. And it will only take me one time. That's all it will take. And it almost appears that once again, God has provided this opportunity. That's what Abishai says. He says, God has made a way. Isn't it obvious to you, David? I mean, Saul has killed innocent lives, the priests that he killed. Saul has been chasing you. He said he wasn't going to keep chasing you, and he's still chasing you. You can't believe Saul. He's not going to stop until you're dead. And now we have an opportunity. And by the way, do you remember that you are one day going to be king? God said you're going to be king. Maybe this is the opportunity. Maybe we need to step into it. Maybe we need to make this happen right now. And David says, don't destroy him. Don't destroy him. And he says, who can lay a hand on God's anointed and be guiltless? He said, I will live with this. Just like he talked about last week when, um, when Abigail said, I don't want you to live with this. David knew he would live with this the rest of his life. But I think what he says in verse 10 is even more significant because look what he says in verse 10. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him or 
His time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. You say, what's so significant about that? I think what's significant about that is David says, I have an opportunity in my time and in my way to make this happen, but I'm going to step back from that. I'm not going to do this in my time and my way. I'm going to step back because I believe that God in His time and in His way is going to make this happen. I don't really know how it's going to happen. There's a possibility He might just die. There's a possibility he'll go into battle and die. But all I know is I'm going to take a step back, take my hands off of this, and I'm going to let God make this happen. And I put it in a statement that says this, that doing God's will requires me to trust the plan of God and the timing of God. Doing the will of God requires me to trust the plan of God and the timing of David says, I don't know how. I don't know in what way, but I'm not going to trust my plan. I'm not going to trust my, I'm not going to even trust the opportunity that's right in front of me that everybody thinks you should take. But I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to say, I think God's got another way through this. I think God's got another way that this is going to happen. He did not at that point know what that was. And we've seen over the last few weeks that sometimes it's the Spirit of God that says, don't do sometimes it's the person of God and I think in this point David understood the principles of God's word and we talked about that a couple weeks ago about the principles and the laws of God's word David understood that there's opportunities where I can take things into my own hands and it would be justifiable and everybody would say God was in it and there are times to take a step back and say I don't know what God's plan is but I'm going to wait for his plan and his time to make this happen. David didn't miss the opportunity though because look what he does in verse 11. He grabs the spear and the water jug and he says, let's go. Let's go. And so they took it and in verse 12 it says, no one saw or knew about it nor did anyone wake up. And then he tells us why. Because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Now think about it for a moment with me. I mean, what are the odds that he could sneak from his camp to Saul's camp, sneak past several thousand men who were soldiers, and sneak into the king's tent, take his things, get all the way back out, all the way back to his camp. Well, I, we get a little glimpse that God was in it. God was in it. You know, sometimes when life happens like that, and you find yourself saying, wow, I don't know how this happened, this is just amazing, remarkable. How did all these details work out? have no idea. Likely God was in it. Likely God was in it. You say, so does that mean God's in it when the plan falls apart and nothing works out? Well, I don't know. That may be another message for another day. Um, but when things happen to work out in our lives, there's a good probability that God had something to do with it so what does david do what does david do well he takes the water jug and he takes the spear heads outside the camp and and my guess is um if i was david i'd probably make a racket in the middle of the night i don't think i would have waited till the next morning <laughs> he wanted to he wanted to say something and so my guess is he made some kind of a racket that woke up the troops. 
And as he wakes up the troops, he calls out Abner, the captain of Saul's guard. He says, uh, by the way, uh, look what I have here, guys, you know. He said, uh, you weren't doing a very good job protecting your king. And if I was, if you worked for me, I would take your life. You wouldn't have a job left. And in the midst of the racket, in the midst of this conversation that's going on outside the camp, Saul says, David, is that you, my son? And David very humbly says, you know, my Lord. And then David again goes through the series of questions where he says, Saul, I don't understand why you're hunting me down. He said, if I've done something wrong, I'll offer a sacrifice. He says, if these are rumors about me, they're not true. He says, this has chased me from the land that I'm supposed to be a part of. It's chased me from my home. It's pushed me into places where there's foreign gods. And he, he talks about even being invited to worship these other gods. Something quite remarkable happens to Saul in that moment. Because there's a change in Saul that is somewhat surprising. In verse 21, he says, I've sinned. He says, I've acted like a fool and I've been terribly wrong. Um, David still doesn't trust him. But it kind of makes you wonder if Saul is finally starting to figure out what's happening in his life. fascinating picture because last week we saw a guy who was his name meant fool and he acted like a fool but he took no responsibility for his actions Saul as bad and as evil and as wicked as he was takes some responsibility for his actions sometimes when you see someone acting foolishly you think there's no hope for that person um, God can change the heart of a fool it doesn't happen very often God can change their heart. Look how David ends there in the next couple of verses. He said, The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord put you in my hands, but I wasn't going to take your head. And he says, God values my life, and he will deliver me from all my troubles. What enabled David to say, No, I'm not going to do this, in spite of all the evil that Saul had done? What caused him to pause? He, he had this sense that, that this was not the right time. This was not the right way. He, he knew God would bring this about. He knew he would. But he said, this is not what God wants us to do. And especially in the, in the day and age we live in, as we're even faced with this, this evil that, you know, this evil that has happened to the the people of France, we wonder, what am I supposed to do about the evil that's around us, the evil that we hope doesn't come to our shores, but the evil that seems to be growing around us? What do we do about all of that? I came across a psalm that I think gives a little bit of direction, and that's Psalm 37. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, it's just a few pages over. Psalm 37 David wrote this psalm when he was much older. And I think he, he had gotten an understanding of what to do when evil confronts us. When a situation presents itself and it looks like there's every opportunity for you to take and step into it and act on it, he offers us a different approach. 
Psalm 37, verse 1, it says, Don't fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. The, the idea of fret is the idea of, of kind of getting churned up over it, getting stirred up over it. Um, you know, when we, when we come home and our dog is there at the door, one of the things that the dog does is she kind of has this hyper spaz fit, you know, when you come in the door. She runs around in circles, she jumps all over you, and, and then she's done, you know. Has to do it every single time, you know. And it's the idea of just kind of getting churned all up and turned all up and, and that kind of happening, and, and, and it, but it happens on the inside. And we all know what that's like. For some of you, when that happens, it comes out. For some of you, you just hold it in and you're just churning inside. And David says, don't do that. Don't do that. But then he offers us some alternatives. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. In verse 4, take delight in the Lord. And God's going to give you what your heart desires. And then commit your way to the Lord. And then look at this last one. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. And then he says, don't fret because of the evil and the wicked people around you. When I have a problem in front of me, I want to solve that problem. I want to find a solution. I want to get it done. Um, couple guys at my house yesterday helping us move a shed and um, it was very different experience than when the professional shed mover moved another shed into my property to have a couple guys there with uh, four by fours and and wenches and straps and uh, um, trying to figure out how do we get this thing up on this trailer without tipping the whole thing over and smashing the thing you know and it's about a two and a half hour process. And I, I, I realized at one point along the way, one of the guys said, well, maybe we should just come back next week and try again. And the other guys were like, no, we're not doing that. We're solving this problem now, you know. And then once they got it up on the trailer, they had to figure out how do we drive it from Denver to Birdsboro, not bounce the thing off the trailer somewhere along the way and it end up in somebody's front yard, you know. So they had to find a way to strap this thing. There was a lot of problem solving and trying to fix this and come up with a solution to make that happen. And, and I really don't have a clue how to do all that, so I'm just kind of standing. What do you want me to hold? What do you want me to move? What do you want me to lift? That's all I'm good for in those situations. I don't have the engineer mind that says, oh, we've got to think this, and this strap has to be right here at this height, and this has to be, and, and levers and all that. I, I, I'm lost, you know. But they were all engaged in solving that problem. And there's other kinds of problems that I jump into and I dive into and I find solutions for. Um, but it's really hard to do what that last phrase says, to just be still before the Lord and to wait for Him. To wait for Him. It is really hard to do that. Really hard to do that. Especially when there's something right in front of you that everything around you says, go and do it. To take a step back and say, I just need to be quiet and wait before God. One of the things I love to do is I love to plan. I love to come up with ideas. That's something that just energizes me. And so when God gave us this building and gave us all this extra space and gave us this land, there's a part of me that just wanted to start planning and coming up with ideas and dreams and plans. And, and I just felt this overwhelming sense that God said, no, I want you to be still and wait. Be still and wait. 
And I've got to tell you, for me, it's like a caged animal just sitting there on my hands. Is what it feels like. But I don't know what God has for us. But I'm willing to be still and wait and see where He leads us in His time and His plan. A couple more verses that are going to come up. Let's go to the next slide. David says this, Don't fret when people succeed. When they carry out their wicked schemes. I think David knew a little bit about that. Not only from the life of Saul, but a little bit later, his own children were doing this to him. And he says, don't fret. Don't fret. Refrain from anger. Don't fret. It's only going to make things worse. And then look what he says in verse 23. He says, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. They'll stumble, but they won't fall. God will uphold them. He says, I was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. You know, it's hard to sit back. It's hard to wait. It's hard not to get churned up when you see evil around you. When you see evil confronting you. It's hard not to do that. And David says, but God will not let you down. He's not going to let you down. And David likely at this point in his life had seen God do that over and over and over and over again. Starting when he was a shepherd boy fighting a lion and fighting a bear. And then when he went up against Goliath. And then when he was being hunted down by Saul. Over and over and over and over again. He saw God being with there with them. And later his son Solomon wrote about these same concepts in a very familiar verse, Proverbs 3, verse 5, when he says this, he says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And I read this description about the word trust this past week, and they said the idea of trust is when you're laying on the ground simply like this, and you're face down and your hands are out, and you have no way of doing anything, and you are completely helpless. He said that's what the picture trust is like. He says, instead of trusting in God, we lean on our own understanding. We lean on our own ways. We lean on our own wisdom. We lean on our own experience. And Solomon says, you can be face down helpless before God. You can be leaning on all of your strategies, all of your plans, all of your ideas. He then goes on to say in verse 6, he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. How, how many ways? How many of your ways? How many of your ways does he say to acknowledge him? All. How many of your ways? Can you say that out loud? All of them. All of them. All of them. The reality is in all of your lives, in, in my life, there's a few things I'm willing, oh, I'm, okay, God, I'll, I'll give you this one, I'll give you this one, but we all have one or two things that we do not want to let go of. And the word acknowledge in, in our day, when we think of acknowledge, we're like, hey, how you doing, you know, or I want to acknowledge a few people who have done these things or given this money, you know, but it's more than that. It's a recognition of God's activity 
in my life in these areas and him saying, are you going to turn this area over to him? Say, John, what are the things that it's hard to turn over to God, the things that are closest to our heart, things that matter the most to us? Some of those we kind of know, you know, relationships that matter the most to us, our kids that matter the most to us, our jobs, career, direction, you know, your grandkids. Maybe a dream that you have for your future. Solomon says, you, you have to decide what you're going to do. You're either going to trust God with them or you're going to lean on your own way with them. And he says, what I'm inviting you to do is I'm inviting you to turn everything over to Him. And then he says the last phrase, He's going to make your paths straight. There's a couple different ideas about this. The, the idea of straight kind of makes it sound like it's windy and somehow it's all going to come like this. Another picture of this that I think is helpful for me to wrap my mind around is it's, it's like a path that is cluttered. And there's trees that have fallen down and branches and it's, it's kind of overgrown and there's leaves that have blown. And you, you kind of know there's a path, but you can't quite see the path. And when you decide to trust God and not lean on your own ways, but to be face down helpless before Him, waiting on Him, acknowledging Him with everything, He's going to start to clear some of this stuff out of the way and the path is going to become clearer. But the truth is, the path that's called God's will for your life may be different than what you want it to be. Because most of us, would, if we're honest, would say, well, I want God's will and I kind of hope God's will will improve my life and, and make my life better and make me feel better and, and make my life happy and solve all my problems. But when Jesus on the cross said, not my will, but your will be done, where did the path lead Jesus? Did it lead Him to painless and pain-free and happily ever after? No, it did not. The path that God had for His Son was a path that led Him to the cross. So it's one thing to say, yeah, I want God's will, but then do you want it His way or your way? His plan or your plan? And then are you still willing to accept that, recognizing that what that means for you will be an amazing sense of being in step with God and His Spirit and His plan, but it likely will not lead you down a path that you would say, pick me, pick me, sign up, I'm ready to go. David had a choice right in front of him. It seemed to be the most obvious choice. He was going to become king anyways. Maybe now was the time. But he chose to step back and say, you know what, I'm going to wait for God's time, for God's way to make this happen. I'm not going to do it in my time or my way. And as we close this morning, I want to, I want to challenge you to ask yourself a couple questions because the likelihood is all of you are facing situations where you are wondering what God wants you to do. A, a career path that is not at all fulfilling and, and you dread every day. A relationship 
with a spouse who's distant and unengaged, a child who wants nothing to do with you or your faith, a struggle that one of your grandkids is facing that you can't do anything about other than just be with them. I want to challenge you to ask yourself a question, couple questions. Why do you hesitate, number one, to give God full control of your life? You say, you're making an assumption there, John, I, I am. My assumption is that it's a struggle, and it is. It is. To assume it's easy to say yes to God, knowing what that means, is pretty naive. So why do you hesitate? Number two, what do you fear will happen if you turn over those one or two things that are in your heart to God? And you say, God, I'm going to stop churning about Him. I'm going to stop fretting about Him. I'm going to stop planning and scheming. I'm going to stop calling John and saying, will you do this? Or my small group, will you do this? And, and, and you know, trying to manipulate. I'm going to stop. And I'm just going to be still with God. And lastly, what's the most difficult part of your life to yield control? What's the toughest spot? We all have one or two of those things in our lives. And God says, I want you to trust me with everything. I want you to open your hands with everything and say, here you go. What's the hardest one for you right now? I want to invite you to bow your heads and uh, just talk to God. I think God stirred some things up in your heart this morning as you saw David's story and saw him saying, I, I want to do God's will. And it's going to require me to trust Him, do it His way and His timing. And So I want you to talk to God about what He's stirring up what He's calling you to turn over and to release and trust Him with today. God, the issue of trust is a pretty big deal. I talked to someone this week who said, I don't trust people easily. I don't trust you. And yet you, a God who we can't see, says, will you trust me? God, who maybe hasn't been there through a difficult time in our lives, says, will you still trust me? 
even when there's something right in front of us that seems the most obvious, logical choice, He says, will you trust Me? Will you wait on Me? Will you be still before Me? God, for people who are used to making things happen, who are used to finding solutions, who are used to fixing and solving, it's really, really hard for us to take our hands off and be face down, completely helpless before You. God, I pray that You would invite us into knowing You and loving You in this way. In Your name. Amen. You know, as the band comes forward to lead us in a song to close, um, there's a sense that David seemed to recognize, and he talked about that in Psalm 37, that he had to come to this place of stepping back from whatever the decision was, of slowing down kind of the churning in his heart about it, and to just be still before God. And it's our prayer that when you come here and worship with us, that that gives you an opportunity to do that. To just kind of hit pause on all the stuff that's happening in life and saying, I just need to stop and be with God for a little bit. And it's our prayer that you would continue to do that even during the week to find a window of time. And whether you reread the story of David or Psalm 37 or another place and you just pause and stop and you are just quiet with God. And so as Johnny and the team lead us in this last song, it's just an invitation to remind us um, what Jesus invites us into to be with him as we face those difficult decisions that are in front of all of us. Johnny?